Good morning. Wes is not with us over here this morning. He is in town. He's not on vacation again. Uh, however, he is currently preaching over, not in big church, but the main worship sanctuary for uh, LD while he's on vacation. Uh, so anyway, I have the privilege of coming for, before you today and sharing with you um, a little bit about Choose the Life. I'm going to have them bring up our first slide in just a moment. And um, I'm going to ask us, I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I am going to ask you to read this verse with me. From Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever, wants, whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we just want to thank you and give you praise for giving us the opportunity to come together once again and worship you. I pray this morning that uh, the message that I speak will be your words. Um, I pray that your heart would flow and your call would be made known to us all. Make everything crystal clear. Speak to us your words and help us to get out of here on time. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got a couple more amens than Wes normally does. So anyway, um, I want to just begin by telling you that uh, as you know and as uh, Patrick said earlier, we're in the middle of a, actually we're at the very beginning of a study called Choose the Life. Okay, what is Choose the Life? First of all, it's a book written by Bill Hall. And this book is, it claims to be a book written to call the church back to its disciple-making roots. Um, I will tell you that the book is meant to challenge your very concept of what it means to actually follow Christ and what it means to be a Christian. It's a book that explains Christ's call for each of us is a call to a life of spiritual transformation. In fact, I'd like to uh, say that Wes started off the series last week by explaining to us the need for the life. Uh, I'm going to touch on a couple things that he touched on uh, last week, just for a recap here. Last week, share, uh, Wes um, quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who once said this. He said, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Now, maybe you didn't hear that because you're thinking, Wes didn't have that much hair last week. And you're right. I took that picture from a long time ago. But anyway, I'll say this again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ. Last week, we heard Wes preach on a couple things. Some of the things that he had mentioned is that too many people have been taught that faith simply means to agree to a certain set of religious facts rather than actually choosing to take up your cross daily and following Christ. I'm going to go into this a little bit more in detail in just a moment, but I'm going to go into a couple, I want to recap a couple other things he said last week. Uh, we learned that faith is not simply believing a series of facts about Christ. We learned that true faith, however, is evidenced by both trust and obedience as we begin to follow the things that Christ has called us to do. I really like how Bill Hall wrote this in his book when he says, A faith that separates salvation from discipleship is not the faith of the New Testament church. Faith without obedience is not real. It is nothing more than intellectual exercise. 
I'd like to tell you about my initial reaction to this book. I was given this book about five months ago. And Wes said, hey, I'd like you to take a look at this book. I'd like your input and see if maybe this is something we could go over as a ministry and discuss this in our cell groups. And, and I'll be honest with you, um, when I opened up the book five months ago, I was turned off by it. Actually, I was turned off by the tone of the foreword and the introduction and the preface and all that stuff and then the first chapter. In fact, I was turned off by the tone of the accusations that were made about the church. And it just, it's like, I, I immediately said to myself, where's this guy coming from? Saying that we're all just not doing what God has called us to do. And, and so it really turned me off. It actually got me to the point where I was so skeptical reading this. When I got to page 47 in chapter 3, I found something that I thought I disagreed with. And I wrote a weblog page about it. And I put this book down for about two months. Decided I'm not going to read it. And um, it generated some awesome discussion on my weblog, and then all of a sudden, one day, about two months after I leave this blog entry and the comments and discussions all done with, I get another comment on my blog, and it's from Bill Hall. And so uh, Bill Hall and I actually had some good email discussion, and that's all online if you want to see the discussion about how I dogged this book in the beginning, and how I disagreed with him, what I disagreed on, and then our conversation he gave me the permission to post on my blog. So if you're interested in that, contact me and I'll, I'll let you know how to find that. But anyway, I will tell you this. Now that I've had the benefit of having that discussion with him and, and the encouragement of many to actually read the entire book before I made any full judgments of it, I will tell you that now I understand the need to expose the problem within the church today. What is the problem? Let's go to the next slide. All you have to do is go to the second page of the preface in this book to realize that the author, Bill Hall, does not like beating around the bush. And the same is true in chapter 3, because the very first thing, before he writes a, word, uh, a single word in chapter 3, he quotes George Barna. George Barna is a man who has devoted his life to researching the Christian movement in America and does a lot of... Uh, research, uh, statistical analysis of people who do, and he does polls and publishes that information, does a great job at it. And he writes this, Christianity has no cost in America. We've made it way too easy to be born again. Perhaps much easier than Jesus intended. We, when will we get to the point at which we accept smaller numbers of intensely devoted people rather than feverishly investing in filling auditoriums and stadiums with massive numbers of the lukewarm Christians that Jesus promised to spew from his mouth. Wow. Pretty bold statement, huh? Um, some people kind of chuckled when I said that I'm going to come in here and give my little Nazarene spin on the preaching thing and do a little hellfire and damnation, but I'm telling you, that this is serious business, and there is a real problem. And I want to say that it, it's our responsibility, it's our generation's responsibility to address this. And in fact, I think that it would be wise right now to say that this is not a new problem, and it's been around since the very early days of the first church that uh, was started by the apostles. In fact, Barna is actually referring to a statement Jesus made to the Apostle Paul in a revelation. And we find this statement in Revelations chapter 3, and we're going to go to that after I take a quick drink. All right. Let's see. You don't, you don't have to read along with me this time. 
But anyway, this is what Jesus said, okay? He said, to the angel in the church in Laodicea, write this. He says, John, I got a message. I want you to tell the church in Laodicea what I think about them. He says, write this word for word. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I don't need anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now this is Jesus' message to the church, to the, now, to the church, to the Christians in the church of Laodicea. This is what Christ has asked John to say. Jesus is obviously upset. He has some issues with those in, in the church that are lukewarm in their passion. They, they actually, they lack all passion for following him. He's not pleased at all about their obsession with meeting their own needs, gaining up wealth, while those around them suffer with needs on a day-by-day -day basis going unmet. Jesus said clearly to the apostles, teach them to, do, teach them to obey everything that I have taught you in the Great Commission. This was not going on. They were not heeding Christ's teaching when he said to them, those that, that, that followed him, that they should deny themselves and carry the cross daily. It was not happening in the church of Laodicea. And I would like to say that I believe that Barna's right. It's not happening overall in the church in America. However, there is good news. Uh, Jesus did have some words of encouragement for the church in Laodicea, and he also has some words of encouragement for us. And that's where we move on to 18 through, uh, 22 in chapter 3. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. First of all, before we go on, he says, I counsel you to come to me and get the things that you need to fix the problem. Okay, that is the very first part. Then when you come to me, this is what he says. I want you to understand, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. We don't like those words, do we? But he, that's what he does. He those who he loves, he rebukes and disciplines. He asks us to be earnest, to be passionate, to be out there for him. And he also urges us to repent. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus wants to come into our midst. He wants to give us all the things we need to fix the problem in our church today, to fix the, the, the problem where we're being ineffective in reaching our society. Uh, he says, to those who overcome, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So obviously, Jesus was not, up, or was not very happy with the church, the way it was going. But he did give some instructions on how to fix it. And George Barna's statement suggests that our churches in America today are facing the very same issue that Jesus rebuked in the Laodicean church. What is that problem? Well, we already talked about it. He said, Christianity has no cost in America. 
We've made it too easy to be born again, perhaps much easier than Jesus intended. In the book we, write, uh, in the book we read on the next slide, uh, we've separated the act of justification and sanctification. And we've accepted a Christianity that makes obedience to Christ optional. Obedience to Christ optional. Now when I was uh, in my own cell group and we discussed this phrase, um, or, I'm sorry, we've separated the act of justification and sanctification. Uh, a lot of people were like, what does that mean? And I visited another cell group uh, later in the week to, visit it, uh, to check in how that cell group was going. And uh, they had the same question. And so I figured I'd go over just real quick with you what is sanctification and justification, or, and, or justification and sanctification, and what's the problem with separating the two. Justification, the best, I'm not a theologian, and I didn't go to Bible seminary to, to learn all these big definitions, but let me explain to you my understanding of justification. It's at that point in salvation, it's that point where you come to Christ, you realize that you've sinned, you've accepted the call that Christ wants more of you, he wants, to, wants you to follow him, and you've accepted that, you've come to the point where you say, okay, I, want, I understand you want to be in control, and I need to do something. And I accept you into my life. At that point, when we accept Christ into our heart, into our lives, we become justified. And what that means is prior to that, when God looked at us, He looked and says, there is sin in my life. He looked at me and said, there is sin in Cliff's life. And there is so much sin that it separates me from Him. After I accepted Christ in my heart, the cost and the penalty and everything else, everything else, it's an accounting term, he had paid my account in full so that there is no longer anything that stands in the way between my relationship with God. In fact, now Christ, and I sometimes say that when I was justified, it became just as if I'd never sinned. Okay, so Christ no longer counts that against me. I have been accepted. However, that's the point where most people start. Sanctification is a, is a term that not many of us are aware of. And sanctification, the best way to explain it is just spiritual transformation. Becoming holy or set apart. It, it's growing more and more like Christ. It, it, it is that point where, okay, we've been saved, now let's follow and live more like Christ. And he's saying that we have stopped at salvation. We have stopped at justification and we don't preach the message of sanctification or being holy anymore. I've got to thinking about this and I think he's right. In fact, I did a little thinking in my mind and I, I put down some thoughts here of what does it take to really be considered a good Christian today? Well, first of all, I'm just going to read off some of these to you. Um, first, learn and, believe the, learn and believe the facts of creation. Well, you know what? In some Christian circles, that's optional. You don't have to believe in the literal Genesis account in many churches today. As long as you believe something out there, God created it. And if you believe evolution, you want to mix that together. If you think it's not millions, if you think it's millions of years, some places agree that it's okay. I'm telling you that's not right. However, that is one of the things that we teach, is that we do teach effectively in some places that you must believe in the creation accounts. We also learn uh, and teach people to believe that sin entered the world through the willful disobedience to the known will of God by Adam and Eve. Most people understand that, okay, why do we need to be saved? It's because there's sin, and this is how sin was introduced into the world. This is why we deal with it today. We do a good job at teaching that. Uh, we learn and believe the penalty of sin is death, even hell. 
Uh, well, hell's not a very popular concept in the American church today, so it doesn't get talked about very often. But it is a real place, and it is something that some people are taught that they must believe in before they become a Christian. Uh, but unfortunately, in some places, it's just not even talked about at all. Uh, learn and believe that Christ came to the earth to pay for the price of our sins by his sacrifice on the cross. I think we do a good job explaining why Christ came and, and the celebration of Christmas and, and, and the Easter uh, time we, we remember what Christ's sacrifice was for. Uh, we learn and believe that Christ was crucified, buried, rose from the dead on the third day and that he is still alive today calling you and I to accept his free gift of eternal life. That's usually in most evangelism methods, the four spiritual laws, the Romans road and, and all those other ones. That, it's usually in there. Uh, then we say that we must acknowledge all or at least some of the above and we must submit that we have sin in our own life and that we need Christ's forgiveness and that if we ask him to come into our lives we will be saved. Is that, how many people here pretty much when you became a Christian that was pretty much your summation? Anybody like me? Yeah, a couple people in here. That's pretty much what you were taught. You know, if you believe these things you're saved. Oh, you got to say that prayer. You know, God forgive me, I'm a sinner. I accept you in my life. Okay. Now, what's missing here is often repentance. Because repentance, this idea of turning and forsaking sin in your life and becoming more and more like Christ, that's been dropped out of the equation. In fact, um, it, it, it... Well, I won't go into that because I'm going to run out of time today. After, after we accept God's free gift, we are urged to join a church, attend regularly, give a percentage of our income, and invite others to do the same. You do those four things, you're in the spiritual elite in the church in America. Okay? Now, some people are afraid to even go so far as to invite friends to church. Anyway, um, and then of course there is giving of your life to the service in, king, in the kingdom of God has been downgraded to simply volunteering once a month to helping out with children's church or some other area of ministry. If you help out that much, that's more than what we probably should expect of you because you're so busy anyway. And, and that's how, how we deal with ministry and service within the church. And today, those who devote more than five hours a week to the work and ministry of the church are either considered super saints or staff members who are paid to do it. Oh yes, I could go on about the problem. And I agree with George Barna and Bill Hall that we do need to recognize and expose the problem that we face in the American church. We've dropped the bar, we've lowered the standard, and we have cheapened God's grace. We need to pick up the pace. We need to answer the call to the life. The call that Christ gave is a call for everyone. Historically, being a Christian meant two things. Either you, it meant that you were a follower of Christ, or it meant that you were one who was Christ-like. Today, that doesn't even come close to what we call a Christian today. Because most people who call themselves Christians today are not Christ-like in their attitudes and their thoughts and their relationships and how they approach things. And most Christians today who call themselves Christians are not spending time alone with God, seeking His will and following His direction. And I will admit to you that I'm one of those people. And Christ's call to the life of true discipleship, to truly following Him, is not a call that I give you today preaching it to you. But it's a call that Christ is calling me to, and it's a call that He's calling each of you to. 
Let's look at um, chapter 9. We're going to move on to the next uh, verse here, or actually the next part of this. Um, a little bit of context about chapter 9 before we get up to our scripture reference. Just want to say that um, the preaching of the five, or the feeding of the 5,000 men uh, happened just before we go into this passage. So when we talk about what Jesus says next, I want you to understand that he's not, he didn't say when it says he spoke to them all, he's not talking to just the 12 disciples because in fact it says that they were just talking together about who they say Christ is. And then it says he spoke to them all saying what we're about to go through. And when I say all, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that there could have been thousands of people he was speaking to. So let's go ahead and look at that. Luke chapter 9, 23 through 25. Then he said to them all, possibly thousands of people, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, but forfeit his very self? In some other versions it says, and forfeit his very soul. The call is clearly to follow Christ. And I want to tell you that the call to follow Christ is twofold. I want to tell you to this morning that there is a universal call that we are all called to a life of self-denial. And there is an individual call to each of us to carry our own cross daily. Our own individual cross. Self-denial is essential to the call. Then he said to them, you must deny yourself. The American Heritage Dictionary defines self-denial as sacrifice of one, uh, one's own desires and interests. You know, I read, deny yourself, give up your life. It sounds pretty scary to me when I first said, oh, I don't know if I want to preach on that. I'm kind of comfortable where I am. I'm just being honest with you. Uh, but it, it, this has really challenged me. The thing is, is, however, Christ does promise this. He says that those who sacrifice their own desires and interests for the benefit of others will gain true life. So it's not about what we lose, it's about what we gain. What is Jesus getting at? I would like to look at a couple other verses on the screen here. Mark 10.45. This is something Jesus said. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so Jesus didn't come just to be served, he came to serve. Wow, I'm low on time. Alright, moving right along. We're going to go breeze right through this here. Uh, let's see here. Christ is, let's just do Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Uh, your attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is ultimate sacrifice. To have the rights to do anything, to say anything, to put your will out there and make everybody do what you want them to do, and yet he gave it all up to come and be a servant for us. Satan would have us to believe that denying ourselves and carrying our cross and losing our lives to follow Christ is the end of everything good. That from that point forward, no enjoyment in life. It's all about just being down in the trenches. Well, that's Satan telling us that. And in John 10.10, he says this. Jesus said, The thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. My purpose is to give life and to give it fully. 
Do you understand that Satan is lying to us when we say, when he tells us that self-denial is a bad thing and that serving others and above your own needs, their interest above your own interest, it's a lie if you think and believe that that is true, that it means that we have to give up all enjoyment in life. In fact, Jesus says, and then the last verse I want to tell you is that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he says, come to me, let me give you clothes to wear to cover up your nakedness. Let me give you true wealth. Let me give you real life. Because anybody who loses this, this fake life that you're living, this dead, spiritually dead life, if you just shed that off and come accept me and the life that I want to give you, the one I originally intended for you to have when I created you, I'm here to provide that for you. But I will tell you that it costs Christ a lot. And it just cheapens what he, his sacrifice on the cross was if we do not acknowledge the fact that Christ did it so that we would follow him. <clears throat> there are a couple things, five things. We're, wow, we're way low on time. Anyway, there are five things. I, you can read them in the book. Um, we are supposed to believe what Jesus believed. This is calling us to a transformed mind. Live as Jesus lived, calling us to a transformed character. Love as Jesus loved, causing us to have transformed relationships. Minister as Jesus ministered, having transformed service, the way we approach service. And lead as Jesus led. If we look at the way that Jesus believed what he taught, are we, are we believing that? Do we live our lives like we believe what he taught? Um, do we live in the way, do we, do we have the same character qualities of Christ? Do we love the way that he loved and served others? And are we having relationships? Do you know Christ often confronted people when he had issues with them? Do we confront people when we have issues? Do, as far as ministering, when, the way that Jesus ministered, how many times did he go and withdraw to a quiet place so that he could rest and relax but people followed him? But rather than tell him to go away, he would say, come and I'll teach you for a couple hours. And, and he would preach the kingdom of God and he would heal their sick. Are we, are we willing to serve the way that he served? And are we willing to lead? And are we willing to have an influence on people's life the way that Christ did? The word transformation. We cannot get away from the obedience or the call to be transformed. The second part, that was the universal call. The next one is the, the, uh, the mission part. The, the calling for each of us. The cross was a central... Let's go to the next slide. There we go. Bill Hall says this. He says, The cross was central to Jesus' mission, and it is a metaphor for ours. Those who have chosen the life, who have denied themselves the right to run their own lives, will find their cross waiting for them on the path of obedience. Deny yourself. Carry your cross. Sometimes we look and we hear, Carry your cross daily. And we look at Mother Teresa and we say, I can't do what she did. Or we look at, at Wes and say, I can't, be a pre I can't get up there and preach every week. Or we look at somebody else and we say, I can't do that. And we look at Christ and it's like, I don't know if I'm willing to... to... The thing is, is, the fact is, is you won't be able to do any of the things that are other people's missions. God will enable you, however, to accomplish the mission. And he will give you a passion to accomplish the mission he has called you to. Notice it says, um, in the original scripture, it says, follow me. And it says, um, he must deny himself and take up his cross. 
So you have an individual cross. And I was going to talk to you about how we discover what our cross is, what our mission is. There's a little bit in chapter 3 about that. I suggest that you get the book and read it if you haven't done so already. Um, and then basically what I wanted to end with tonight, or today, <laughs> yeah, I've been up here a long time, haven't I? <laughs> is I wanted to, rather than go into anything else, I would like to just suggest to you what does it look like when somebody, who, when somebody has actually given up their life so that they might save it? What does it look like for somebody who denies themselves? And so I want to go to the next screen and I want to read to you, if you'll just follow along with me. Uh, you don't have to read with me because I'll mess up. Anyway, here's what we said. This is Keith Green. He is a Christian artist back in the 70s and you can tell by his hair that he's from the 70s. I want to read this to you. Keith Green was 15 the first time he ran away from home. He started a journal that ran for years as he looked for musical adventure and spiritual truth. Keith had a Jewish background and grew up reading the New Testament. He called it an odd combination that left him both open-minded but deeply unsatisfied. His journey led him to drugs, Eastern mysticism, and free love. When Keith was 19, he met a seeker-slash-musician named Melody. They were married a year later. But his spiritual quest continued. As soon as Keith opened his heart to Jesus, he and Melody opened their home. Anyone with a need or, or who wanted to kick drugs or get off the street was welcome. Of course, they always heard a lot about Jesus. Keith's songs that he wrote were often birthed during his own spiritual struggles. He pointed the finger at himself, penning these honest and vulnerable lyrics. But he left room for God to convict us too. While on earth, Keith struggled with the same things we do. Discipline, deadlines, and problems crying for our attention. He had music to write and a growing family. And he was also discipling the 70 believers who had come to be part of the last day's ministry. The ministry that he and Melody expanded from the outreach that began in their home. In seven short years of knowing Jesus, the Lord took Keith from concert crowds of 20 or less to stadiums of 12,000 people who came to hear only him. Television and radio appearances became the norm. Still, Keith's heart was to please the Lord and to build his kingdom, not his own. On July 28, 1982, there was a small plane crash and Keith went home to be with Jesus. And I will tell you that two of his children were with him at the time that died in the crash also. Although Keith is now with Jesus, his life and ministry is still making a huge impact around the world. His wife, Melody, still goes out and is a public speaker. And um, he, she, his, her number one book was uh, a book about Keith Green and his passion, Sold Out to Christ. Uh, his songs and passionate delivery are still challenging lives. His writings are translated into many languages. Keith Green was simply a man of conviction. When his convictions led him to an eternally worthly, worthly, worthy object in the person of Jesus, he sold all that he had, ambitions, possessions, and dreams, to possess his love. In so doing, he became a man of devo devotion. This is a man who chose the life. And because of the time, we're not going to do our normal have the band come back up. I hope you guys don't mind that we're going to do that. Instead, we're going to, for our encounter time, we're going to close with the song by Keith Green, if you don't mind. Uh, and basically, encounter time, for those of you who are new here, um, we have this time where we come up and we take of the communion uh, for those who are believers in Christ. For those who call this place home and are members, uh, we have an offering box over here for us uh, to give as Christ has called us to give and, to, and led us in our heart to give. 
Um, if you would like to talk more about the call to follow Christ, I'll be over here to the side. But uh, what I'd like to do is just ask you, as um, the song opens up, and as Keith talks about the beginning of how he came to write this song, I'm going to ask you to just sit where you are. Okay? To just sit and listen to him. And then when he starts singing the song, I'd like to ask you to stand and just watch the words. And at any point during the song, if you want to come up and take part of anything up here, feel free to do so. Let's do that now. On Monday night this week, about midnight, I wrote a letter to the Lord. I didn't know where to mail it, so I put it in my Bible. And I asked him, Lord, you got to do something about my heart. You know, a lot of time's gone by since I met you. And it's starting to harden up. You know, it's just kind of natural. I want to have baby skin, Lord. I want to have skin like a baby on my heart. It's starting to get old and, and wrinkled and callous. It's not because anything I'm doing because of a lot of things I'm not doing. And I stayed up till about two in the morning writing this song. Oh Lord, please light 
that's fueled with holy fear. I wanna take your word and shine it all around, but first help me just live it, Lord. And if I'm doing good, please help me to never make a sound. Except to give all the glory to you. Oh Lord, you're beautiful.